0: to Book Bistro, where book enthusiasts come to chat about the books they love in a warm and supportive environment.
1: Today is Wednesday, March 1st. 2023. This is Shannon. And tonight I'm here with Stacy, Brooke, and Georgina. And we are talking about books set in New York. Because I don't think we've ever done an episode like set in a very specific place. We've done like books set in like regions, um, books that are set you know, in other places aside from America. But I don't think we've ever like picked a city and said, "Okay, this is like all books have to be set here." So here we are with the first of these, New York. So we will get started with the usual housekeeping information. Then Brooke will start us off, followed by Georgina, me, and then Stacy. You can find us on Facebook by searching for the Book Bistro Podcast. Once there, you can post to our timeline. You can also message us privately. If you want a more social interaction, you can join our Facebook listener group, which is pretty quiet at the moment, though we are looking at some ways of possibly revamping it. If Facebook is not your thing and you still would like to hang out with us, check us out on our WhatsApp group. You can subscribe to that either by Messaging us through Facebook or by sending us an email, and one of us will be happy to add you. If you're looking to get a hold of us via email, you can do that by contacting the Book Bistro Podcast at gmail.com.
2: So, my first book this evening is it's- On What Grounds Coffee House Mystery, Book One by Cleo Coyle. So our main character's name is Claire, and she runs a coffee shop um, in New York City. It's called The Village Blend. And at the beginning of this series where we're joining her, um, she has been working at The Blend for about a month now. Um, She used to work there about, about 10 years ago. She took a break to move to I think she said New Jersey with her daughter. Um, The owner of this coffee shop is her ex-mother-in-law so the whole reason why she kind of left even though she loved her job was because she was splitting with her husband and she kind of just needed to get out of the environment. Once her daughter grew up she started doing things to try to figure out, like, what she wanted to do with her life. Um, She was working for a magazine, doing different articles about coffee and stuff like that. Um, And then her um, mother-in-law, her name's Madam, she calls her up and asks her to come and manage the coffee shop, again, because the current manager was causing some issues. Um, He was stealing things. um, He wasn't running things properly and they were losing a lot of money. So she agrees to come back because on top of it all, Madam also promises her to give her like a percentage of the ownership. Part of Madam's hope is that her and her son will get back together. So she comes back and she starts working there she's doing well and she's getting the business is coming back on track because everyone just loves how she runs things she's getting things like back to where they started so like getting rid of the like the music that was playing bringing back like the more um like classical so that this coffee shop sounds like one I would love to go to like it sounds like one I would love to just like get out my iPad and just spend like a couple hours there. It reminds me kind of of a coffee shop that used to be near my university that I went to in Guelph. And I remember spending like a couple hours there just studying. Because so it was just the nice smells, all the quiet music, the quiet people. And it was just a lot of fun. This I just, The village blend really kind of reminds me of this. So Cozy... Um, that's her last name, Claire Cozy. She goes to work one day and the shop isn't open. And she's like, what the, like, I don't understand So her assistant manager was supposed to open for her and everything was supposed to be set. So she goes into the thing all upset and like the chairs are still on the tables. Nothing is going, the lights are off. And she's like, what is going on? So she knows like Um, I don't remember exactly what time this is, but maybe about like 10. So like they've met, they've missed the morning rush. So this is really, really kind of awful for her because she's just getting things back on track. So she goes around trying to figure out like what is going on. And she finds her assistant manager crumpled at the bottom of the stairs. Oh. And this gets her started on this whole investigation. Like, so the police come and they're thinking, oh, it was like an accident. She must've just fallen down the stairs. But this assistant manager is actually like a dance, a dancer on the side, like not on the side. So she works at the cafe on the side, but she is a dancer. And so like, she doesn't believe that this is possible. Like, cause she's very, very good on her feet. So there's no way that this happened. So she starts investigating, and we start meeting different characters that we'll meet through the throughout the series. Um, we meet her ex-husband, and there's some he's hoping to get back with Claire, but Claire just kind of pushing him away. We get to meet her daughter, and there's just all these wonderful characters. And as she's investigating, we learn we learn a little bit about this girl who has fallen down the stairs and we kind of learn about like some of the things that are going on around it. And that my friends is all I can give you because it's a way too easy to uh, spoil. So this is on what grounds coffee house mystery book one. And it's by Cleo Coyle. And I will tell you, like I've read all the books that are out so far in this series. I love them all. Like they all, what I love the most is like I love you can it's like you can smell the coffee as they're talking about it and like I want start, to start taking notes on how to make coffee properly because they're always talking about like the different way to make it the different like textures what you're looking for in the smells and like all these things and I'm definitely gonna be looking for a lot of these recipes that's another thing at the end of the book you get to get recipes and I love it
0: so if I could like live in a business, it would be a coffee shop. Like I just, me too. yeah, I had a, I had a, a local college coffee shop like you did. And I like, it's still my special place and, and, and for grad school too. And I just, I love books where the coffee shop kind of feels like a character, you know, like, yeah. and yeah. it just feels so vibrant. Oh, so I'll have to add this to my TBR. Cause I do love all the coffee shop things.
3: My first book of the evening is the Friday Night Knitting Club by Kate Jacobs. Now, this is set in New York, of course. And Georgia Walker is a owner of a knitting shop. And she's a single mother, too, to a biracial child, which um, it it talks about more of that in the book. her daughter, Dakota, is 12 and has all the angst of a 12-year-old. Um, Georgia's assistant, Anita, helped her start the business or gave her the money to start this knitting shop in Manhattan. And it talks about <clears throat> how these women come every Friday and sit and knit and eat cookies and drink coffee and show each other the stuff that they're working on. But it also goes through their lives. So we see a character who's a grad student named Darwin. And Darwin is very aggressive, wanting to know why these women want to sit and knit and go back in time when, you know, that seems to be backwards of the more modern thinking of women. And it goes through Georgia's story, Darwin's story, um, a character named Lucy, another part-time employee that Georgia has named Perry, and a guy who owns a shop next to Georgia's. Um, He sells sandwiches and deli, stuff like that. And he's in love with, Anita, and this book is interesting because it doesn't, it goes through multiple pubs um, rather than just Georgia's. Um, It goes through her struggles as being a single parent through having a biracial child and also the father of this child who showed no interest up until um, the little girl turned 12. Um, This is the Friday Night Knitting Club by Kate Jacobs. Um, I like this book because it shows like it kind of gives you the the feel of the city, but also this like everything happens in this little shop. So um, it's a three book series for this one.
1: All right, so I'm changing it up a little bit because I have a nonfiction book for my first pick tonight. It is Girl Scout Cookie Season, yum! And so I want to talk about Troop 6000, the Girl Scout troop that began in a shelter and inspired the world by Nikita Stewart. I. I've had this on my radar for the past couple of years and I finally decided to read it. It is the story of Giselle Burgess, who was or is a mother of five, who unfortunately was you know, due to a whole bunch of circumstances that were beyond her control, forced to raise her five children in New York City's shelter system. And one of the things that gave her joy is the work that she was able to do for Girl Scouts of America and as she was getting to know this organization and seeing the way it brought young women together, inspired them, taught them to grow, she realized that it was very very hard for children in the shelter system to have access to what you know all the things that Girl Scouts bring to America's girls. So she decided with the help of some Girl Scout officials and other people who are also living in shelters that she wanted to start a special Girl Scout troop that was just for girls whose families are experiencing homelessness. And so we see this journey, how this started as just like a germ of an idea and eventually became this powerhouse that swept through New York City and also. Into states around the country. Um, We hear about Giselle and sort of how she ended up homeless, but also how hard she worked to bring her family out of this situation. Um, You get to see, you know, eventually what happens to her and her children. You also get to meet a bunch of other families who are also experiencing homelessness and how they, how Girl Scouts sort of empower these young women and teach them that, you know, we put a lot of of stigma in this country around being homeless. And this is hard, I think, especially for children. Like we know that growing up is tricky and full of angst and all sorts of things. But if you add Homelessness to that equation, everything just becomes exponentially more difficult. And so you get to kind of put a face to homelessness in New York in a way that I think we don't do often enough. Like we view the homeless population as just like this monolith of people that, you know, most people just decide like people have done things to end up in this situation and we don't want to know, you know, how they got there. And I loved. Stuart's ability to give us the humanity behind all of this, both like the, the joys of starting this Girl Scout troop when Troop 6,000 sold their first, um, when they were able to participate in their first cookie season, to just everything that goes along with being homeless in America, especially in a big, big, busy city like New York that we think of as being so rich and, you know, full of of great things. So this is Troop 6000, the Girl Scout troop that began in a shelter and inspired the world by Nikita Stewart.
0: And I need this so much. I don't need much um, nonfiction at all. I tend to Um, get a little bored i don't know what that says about my character but like something like when something catches my interest i have to have it and this is one of those especially because i'm assuming it describes like the whole sort of um like shelter system in new york city Mm -hmm. and describes like different i i like i like learning about specific things and this would be um me too um do we know around like what era this book is centered um so this modern ish
1: yeah. Oh, this is very modern. It's like okay. twenty. I think. I think she starts <clears throat> like trying to figure this out in like twenty fourteen or twenty fifteen. Oh, interesting. And so yeah. it's very, um, you know, it's very modern. The book came out. I want to say in twenty twenty, um, and it's just very well written. There's like little bits of Girl Scout history sort of sprinkled in here. Where you get to see sort of, you know, like all the things that the Girl Scouts have stood for over the years and how Giselle wanted to, you know, bring these specific elements to girls living in the shelters.
0: So sometimes when I read a book, um, I feel like a certain place or city or town or whatever coffee shop, whatever, becomes kind of like another character in the book. And I really like books that really make um, a place feel very vibrant and alive and essential to the telling of the story. And that's how I felt when I read Real Men Knit, Real Men Knit number one by Quana Jackson. And, you know, I was laughing when I saw when Georgina started talking about her knitting book and I'm like, well, I'm jumping back on that bandwagon (laughs) because my first book is also about a, a knitting shop. And this book is about, um, it's about four foster brothers who have been adopted by a woman that they call Mama Joy. And Mama Joy has um, a knitting shop in Harlem called Strong Knits. And very tragically, Mama Joy passes away unexpectedly. And so all four of her um her sons, her adopted sons, now are trying to figure out what to do with her business. And even though they all have very strong, like, love for the knitting shop and and for Mama Joy, three of the four of them feel like it would be best to sell the shop. But Jesse does not feel that way. He feels very strongly in kind of, you know, letting his Mama Joy's legacy live on through the knitting shop and, He really doesn't want to see it close because it was such a vital part of his childhood when he started living with her as a foster child. And um, believe it or not, he and his brothers all were taught by Mama Joy to knit. And for him, um, growing up with ADHD, he found knitting to be a really um, wonderful way of kind of focusing his mind and a very peaceful thing to do. And his brothers are all very skeptical of him kind of keeping this knitting shop open. But, you know, luckily for him, even though he's kind of known as like the heartbreaker of Harlem, he has this childhood friend named Carrie who um, kind of grew up coming to the knitting shop and, and has worked there now. And he kind of, you know, begs her to help him keep this business open and even though she knows that, you know, getting involved with Jesse on more than a superficial level is probably not going to do good things for her heart. She cannot like say no to his plea to keep it open and thus begins sort of like a rebranding of the space. Um, and what I love most, I mean, the, the romance is lovely and gentle. And I, I loved, um, I loved all that part and like kind of the brother's, beginning to kind of deal with some of their differences but what I loved most about this book was the neighborhood involvement and how Harlem it's you know it's it's in New York City so you feel like it's supposed to be like this at least for me as someone who doesn't live in New York I'm I'm like a small town you know kind of Ohio girl and so when I think of Harlem I think of this like enormous place and yet this neighborhood came together it with a very kind of um united sort of small town feel to kind of help save a very valued business in the community. And Harlem to me felt like a small, loving, warm, supportive community of business owners and, you know, people in the neighborhood in the in the community who all kind of work together to help this dream of keeping this shop open become a reality. And it was my favorite thing about the book. Um, This book I thought was lovely and well-written and gentle. And I don't really understand um, the really low rating it has on Goodreads. I don't think it deserves um, to be rated so low. I think there was a vibrancy to the storytelling and like a lovely, gentle feeling about these four kind of disparate men who were all brought together by Mama Joy and her knitting shop and how, in different ways, how she influenced their lives. And I think it's just, I think it's a special lovely book that deserves more attention and love than it's ever gotten. And um, just the way that Harlem is represented just makes me want to go and visit and find a knitting shop, even though I couldn't knit if you paid me like a million dollars, but that doesn't really matter. Cause I really want to go and visit strong knits and meet these lovely brothers <laughs> So anyway, if you want to read a lovely romance that's set in a very vibrantly described Harlem, you must pick up Real Men Knit, Real Men Knit number one by Quana Jackson.
2: So my next book this evening is This Time Tomorrow by Emma Straub. So our main character's name is Alice. And when we joined her, she, um, She's just about to turn 40, and she's pretty happy where she is. She's working for the school where she went when she was younger. Um, She enjoys it. She's kind of like the person that helps to decide what kids can go to the school. It's like a private school. Um, We get to meet some of her friends, and things are going well, except that her father is very ill he's in a coma at the time or at least he's not able to talk to her anyway and they're talking about sending him to hospice um he has cancer and he's a really interesting person that his name is leonard and he is he's like a science fiction fantasy author So he's written this book and then this book or series, and then it's turned into like a TV series or movies. And he just sounds like such an interesting person. So Alice's mom is not really in the picture. Um, It's always just been her and her father. Her, Her mom kind of pops in every once in a while. So just before her birthday, she goes out for a drink with her friend, because she's just had a really rough visit with her father, because the nurses are telling her that it's not looking good, and that they don't think he's going to be around for much longer. And this really, really obviously bothers her a lot. And she's not ready to say goodbye. So she goes out for a drink with her best friend, Sam. Um, Sam and her have been friends since they were in pretty much like elementary school, as far as I can remember and so they're kind of doing their thing they're having a drink and then Sam gets a call from her husband and has to rush off because she's got two young children so she stays um Alice stays and has her drink and she has a cup she has another drink and she's feeling a little tipsy but she heads home and then when she gets home she realizes that she doesn't have her keys Ooh. So, somehow, she ends up deciding that she's going to go and sleep in the shed. I'm <laughs> not really <laughs> sure why she decides this, but she ends up falling asleep in the shed. And then she wakes up, and all of a sudden, she's 16 years old. Whoa. So, she's had this little, like, time slip, time loop, something, where she's now... so she remembers everything. So her memories are all her at 40, but her body, like she's totally 16. Her body is 16. Her life is 16. Um, so she's kind of like, this is weird. I don't know what's going on. Um, so then she hears somebody out in like out outside of her room and she's thinking that it's like a friend or something. She doesn't really know. She's not quite, figuring out what's going on but then when she leaves her bedroom it's her father her father is like 40 years old now and he's all vibrant he's all looking great he's healthy and this is so like wow for her because she's he's been pretty ill for for a bit of time now and so She kind of like trying to go with the flow, trying to figure out how this all works. And at the same time, trying to figure out like, how do I get back to get back to my 40 year old life? Because this is just really weird. So she kind of goes on, does her thing, and she gets to repeat her 16th birthday so she does that and she's trying to remember like all these things that she had read about like what can happen if you change things and all these things. She's trying to remember oh. all these things while she's going along with all this. And so she's kind of worried about what is going to change or what's not going to change. And then as we're going along, she realizes that at some point, Everything's going to flip back and she's going to be back in her life. So she's trying to fit in as much as she can into this time. And then she ends up flipping back to her life and things have changed a bit. Then she rejoins her her 40s and she's back on like the eve of her birthday again. So she gets to repeat it again. And so then she knows that she can kind of rotate it and she's realizing that she can go back and she can change little things to be able to maybe make things better. And so her, what she's realizing is that she, what she wants the most is she wants to spend, to soak up as much time as she can spend with her father. So what I really, really love about this book is... There's this love that you feel between a father and daughter and how like in a lot of situations, you always see these books and they're wanting to spend all this time with a certain person, a loved one or like a guy or a girl or somebody, right? But no, it's all about she wants to figure out a way to spend as much time with her father and if possible to make things, make each of them change things in their past life to maybe make things a little bit better in their current life. And I just loved, loved, loved this book. This is This Time Tomorrow by Emma Straub. She
1: has been on my TBR for quite a while now. Um, All adults here and modern lovers. Um, so I definitely want to check her out.
3: My second book of the evening is Relic by Douglas Preston and Lincoln Child. Now, of course, this defines New York City because they go through the Natural History Museum. So there is a murder in the Natural History Museum of two boys it never says the ages of these children or if it did i didn't hear it um and they call the police and um police officer i can't remember his first name but his last name is dogosta and he is investigating the murder of these children which takes place in the museum like They don't ever leave. Everything's investigated in the museum. Um, The FBI is called in. And of course, this is where we meet Aloysius (laughs) Pendergast. And Aloysius is a person all his own. He he is weird. He walks around in a funeral suit. His blonde white hair is slicked back um, like someone just gave him a big old lick. <laughs> and um, we see the employees in this museum. We see a woman named um, Green. I'm blanking on her first name at the moment, but her last name is Green. Margaret, I think. No, Margot. Margot Green. And she is a grad student who is working at the museum while these murders are taking place. Um, They call in canine dogs to try to find what killed these children because they're not sure if it's like a tiger on the loose from a zoo (laughs) or if it's um, a person who is trying to make the murder seem like an animal. And we see the director of the museum, um, just all kinds of characters. And really, the, the, while the murder of these children is tragic, what really defines the book is the museum and all its different exhibits and how it's part of New York since it's a landmark. Um, Or that's what, that's the way the book makes it seem. This is Relic by Douglas Preston and Lincoln Child. And it is the first of what, I think I saw book 20 or something.
1: Yeah, it's like, I was going to say somewhere around 15 or 20 books this series has. I have never read these. So I thought it would be impossible to talk about New York City without having a theater book, like impossible, criminal, all these things.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yes, 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 yes.
1: yes. So we have to talk about A Tender Thing by Emily Nabauer. And this is historical fiction set Mm -hmm. in the Broadway district. So Mm -hmm. this is about Eleanor. And Eleanor has grown up in rural Wisconsin, and she's always dreamed of being on Broadway. She buys all the cast recordings that she can get a hold of and memorizes all these songs, and she has these big dreams of being on Broadway one day. But this seems really out of reach for her. Like she's on this small, you know, Wisconsin town. Like how is this ever going to happen? So. One day she hears that they are doing an open casting call for a show. And she knows that this is like her one chance to do what she's always dreamed of doing. And so she leaves home and heads to New York City. So she doesn't actually get the part that she's auditioning for, but she catches the eye of Don Mannheim who is producing a show called A Tender Thing. And this is in like in the '50s, um,
2: a really
1: like revolutionary show on Broadway, one that has never been done before, and that causes a lot of social upheaval. This is the story of a white woman who falls in love with a black man and all of the like civil rights, you know, it's, it's not called civil rights at that point, but all of the things that result from this relationship. Now, Eleanor is kind of privileged and clueless. She doesn't know a lot about the struggles of Black people. There's just a lot of things that she doesn't understand about theater, but also about life in general and how other people live. But as the book goes on, you see her grow up in ways that I think are so important, ways that You know, we all learn things from other people if we're open to doing so. And although Eleanor doesn't always make the best choices and she's not always the best friend that she could be, you do see her growing and changing over the course of the novel, which I really appreciated. Um, She gets to know Charles, who is a Black man and her co-star, and she also begins this kind of messy half professional, half personal relationship with the very tortured Don Manheim. And together, this cast brings the show to life, even though so many people are against it. This is a novel of social justice. It's a novel of the glitz and the glamour of the Broadway stage. It's kind of a coming of age story as we really see Eleanor figuring out not only who she was, like who her, you know, who she was when she came to New York, but who she actually wants to be, and what things are important to her from her past. What things can she let go of? Um, it's a novel that really explores humanity and sort of brings to light, I think, what a lot of people don't like to think about in you know, the, the heyday of Broadway and some of the less glamorous sides of that whole industry, but also the determination of people who love the theater craft and want to use it to bring change to the world around them. If you do this in audio, it is read by the author, who is an utter delight Um, As a reader, she was on the podcast several years ago when this book first came out, and it was one of my very, very favorite interviews. Um, She has had some musical theater experience, and it really shines through both in her writing, but also in her narration. If you haven't read this, I highly, highly recommend it. This is A Tender Thing by Emily Nabauer.
0: And I remember when you talked about this, um, I think when it first came out, maybe it was one of your picks, um, monthly picks. Mm -hmm. And you told me about this author interview, like right after it happened and how much fun it was to talk with the author who had so much like great experience and just was, yeah. Um, So this has been on my TBR, you know, since you talked about it like a couple of years ago. Yeah, it's very, very well done. I like that, <laughs> and I do love all the Broadway things. And I'm going to shift gears. You know, we've talked about like knitting shops and like natural history museums and coffee shops. We've talked about Broadway, but one thing we haven't talked about is what it would be like to be in New York City um, at the beginning of an apocalypse. And wow. <laughs> I know and whenever I can talk about this series or this author's work, I always, always try to fit it in. Yes. Yeah. And so yeah. we, we, a lot of the, um, the, a lot of us here at Book Bistro talk about the author, Sarah Lyons Fleming, and um, she's popular among the staff here. And we don't talk so much though about the city series which is sort of like the spinoff of her original series until the end of the world. And um, you don't have to read those two series in order necessarily to get the full story, but I do think it would help if you read them beginning with the until the end of the world trilogy. But tonight I'm going to talk to you about Mordacious, which is the city series book one by the incomparable amazing just incredibly talented Sarah Lyons Fleming. And I'm not even paid to say that. So this book is about Sylvie and Sylvie is um, a bit of a um, trickly main character. She's not always the easiest to like and understand. And at the beginning of the book, but I I love her, but at the beginning of the book, Sylvie is um, in the hospital um, as her mother is there dying. And she and her mother, for many reasons, have had a pretty contentious and challenging relationship um, during the years. And she's struggling with the fact that she's not feeling a lot about her mother's death, except resentment that she once again has to pay for something for her mother in in terms of the funeral. And she also feels bad that she doesn't feel much, except relief that her mother is dying. And she's sitting here like, you know, in her mother's hospital room and she's watching some sort of cable television in the background and just kind of, you know, waiting around for her mother to essentially pass away. And she's trying to be a good daughter in this last minute of her mother's life. And during this time, her best friend, Grace, gets off work and comes to the hospital to be with her. Um, because she knows that Sylvie will need her support. And it comes to pass that her mother does eventually die. And so after a few minutes um, of like pressing the call button for a nurse, Sylvie and Grace finally go out into the hallway together to figure out like if they can get a nurse in there and all of that to kind of begin the sort of proceedings after death. Well, there's something really weird going on. That's very quiet on the floor where they are. And when they finally do get a nurse's attention, she's in a patient room. And when she emerges from the patient room and turns toward them, something is quite wrong with her in that she thinks it might be a good idea to come and try to eat both Grace and Sylvie. Yeah, and definitely. as that doesn't seem like the best thing to have happen. And as Grace and Sylvie begin running down the hall, they are chased by um a pack of undead patients and nurses and doctors and other hospital staff and visitors. And things look pretty dire until they are rescued and taken down to a secured room in the basement where they are um You know, there's like some nurses and patients and um, a couple police officers and, uh, you know, people from the hospital who've all been collected in this room. And it's really challenging for Grace and Sylvie to kind of like wrap their minds around like what in the actual hell is happening? Like, did they really see like this nurse like bite into the neck of an old woman? Like, did they really see what they thought they saw? And as they're trying to like come to terms with like the fact that something in New York City is going terribly awry, things get even worse in New York City. And how could things get worse, you might ask? Well, (laughs) they go up on the roof of the hospital the next day um, with a group of people from the basement cafeteria to try to put up like a big sign that's like, hey, help us, like we're here. And they witness the blowing up of all of the bridges that lead into New York City, which essentially cuts off New York City from everything else. And they are trapped on this sort of like, I guess you call New York City an island, right? Yes. Yeah. Um, and good. they're they're trapped, like in this place, without any way of getting help from the outside. And they proceed to live in the hospital cafeteria with this group of people for um a few weeks, but you know, the gen, like things are going to happen. The generator is going to run out of um, juice and they can't live there forever. There's not unlimited food. So they make a plan um, to leave the hospital with one of the nurses, Maria and go to, I know. And they go to a family friend's um, townhouse or apartment to kind of brownstone to kind of um, try to, you know, figure out what the heck to do now that, um, there are people out in the world who like legitimately want to eat them. And this is the first book in this series. And I don't want to like, I mean, I could sit here and talk about this book for, I mean, it's like, um, I'm guessing in print, it's probably about a 500 page book in audio. I want to say it's like 23 hours of nonstop action in audio. And so, um, what I will tell you is this group or this, this book is about Sylvie and Grace and the group, the found family that they create with Maria, the nurse, and some other people from the hospital. And then other people they meet along the way as they try to figure out how to live in a place that's been cut off from the rest of the world. There's no like uh, contact via phone or um, internet. All of that is down. They're living in a world without power. You know, There's no way to contact anyone who's not in New York City. And they have to figure out how to survive when the streets are teeming with zombies who want to eat their flesh. And so they have that to deal with. They have to learn how to survive in a sort of inhospitable landscape. And they also have to learn how to stay smart and survive among other groups of survivors who are interested in taking from them what they have. And after they've kind of started settling into this, like, really kind of traumatic way of life, the brother of the person who owns the apartment ends up getting there and his name is Eric and thus starts the beginning of the sort of romantic story arc that spans the three books in this trilogy between Sylvie and Eric and the until the end of the world series focuses on his sister, Cassie, but they leave New York city early on in the first book, which is why I'm not talking about that trilogy But this is a really involved, um, amazing story that really um, um, I I sort of feel like from things that I've read that perhaps the author might have um, done some of her growing up or lived for a period of time in New York. And this is, again, one of those books where New York kind of feels like um, a character in and of itself. Um, They discuss like all the different parks, like they're living in Brooklyn. And so Brooklyn itself is probably the most vibrant section of New York City that they describe And it's all about like um, how they have to travel around this area and stay alive to get food and supplies that they need in order to try to survive the ending of the world as they know it. And I'm not doing it justice. I know it. I don't know how to talk about this book without giving everything away, except to say that if you like post-apocalyptic fiction, if you like danger, if you like a little bit of slow burn romance, if you like just stories about how the human spirit either triumphs in the face of adversity or completely disintegrates. This is the, um, this is the trilogy for you and this is Mordacious and it is the city series book one by Sarah Lyons Fleming. And there's just no way to do this book justice without giving things away. So I'm sorry.
1: (laughs) It's so hard to talk about that. There's so much that goes on.
2: So my final book this evening is These Shallow Graves mm-hmm. by Jennifer oh. Donnelly.
1: Ooh, I want to read
2: this. <laughs> so this um, is a historical fiction and it takes place in 1890s. Our main character's name is Josephine, but we call her Jo. And... She, she's like a rich kid. She's um, going to finishing school. She's about to graduate and be married off to this world of luxury. And this is kind of what she should want. But Joe really doesn't want this. What she really wants is she wants to do some investigating, and she wants to become a reporter, something that would just not go over well if her parents knew this. So when we first joined her, she's at her school and she's trying to be a good finishing school girl. And you can really tell that she's struggling. Um, her, her friends, um, you can tell that they really enjoy what they're learning. But she really, she has like her, so her best friend, not her best friend, but a friend that she's had for a really long time. His name is Bram. And he's kind of the, the boy that she's going to probably marry someday. And she knows that she should really be happy about this, but she's not really sure whether she actually loves him. She knows she likes him. she's not sure that she like loves 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 him so she's kind of going through all this and thinking um well one day she's at school and she gets called um she gets brought down to the administrator's office and she's not really sure what this all about because she hasn't as far as she knows she hasn't made any mistakes lately (laughs) so she doesn't think that there's something that she's done so she walks in and she's like the first thing she said like so what we do also I did forget to mention is that she also helps her write like the newsletter or newspaper for the finishing school and one of the little columns that she writes is kind of like a little bit can be a little bit risky so she walks in and immediately she starts being like oh ma'am I this and but then she really um realizes that that's not the situation because there's this really the administrator has this really really sad look on her face and she looks over and she sees her two friends there and she's like i didn't realize she guys were coming. like i would have changed into my like not um not school clothes um what are we going to do and then she realizes that they too have a really sad look on their face and she's like is everyone okay? Like, are your are your parents okay? And, she, and they're like, "Joe, it's not, it's not our parents." Um, so if we find out that her father has her father has died. Um, and all she knows at this point is that they're not really sure what happened, but that there was some sort of incident with a gun um it was his own gun and so she's really confused about this because her father he would definitely everyone's like oh maybe he was cleaning it and he didn't realize that it was loaded and she knows that he's not he's not that dumb like he knows how to clean his gun properly and safely and so she doesn't believe that it was an accident so she goes on home and she starts kind of really, she's, she's really stuck on this whole like she doesn't think that it was an accident. Like she doesn't feel that her father, like she feels some, something happened to her father and she wants to know what's happened. So she know she gets home and she knows that she has to be all like grievy and stuff. And she doesn't, she can't figure out why she's not crying. Like, she's very, very upset and very shocked and very, like, bothered by it because she loved, loved, loved her father. But at the same time, like, she's not crying while she's home. We're kind of learning about the expectations of women and kind of the limitations of women in the 1890s. Um, we get to hear about like the clothes they're wearing, um, the things they're allowed to talk about. So sometimes um, the women will walk into a conversation and the men will be like, oh, we better change the topic. And so we get oh, to yeah. really get a feel for how limiting, at least in my opinion, anyway, <laughs> limiting life was back then. And we also get a feel at the beginning how, Joe is very kind of naive about the world, like she's kind of sheltered, but she also is pushing against the restrictions of her spot in life. So her, her father owned and ran the newspaper and also had a port owned a portion of a shipping of a shipping company. So she's asked to give a note um, about some stuff to do with the newspaper so she's not really supposed to go to the actual newspaper place because that's not really what women should be doing. Mm-hmm. And so not she goes, Not proper. I know, not proper at all. So she talks her driver friend into taking her to the newspaper. And she goes and she drops off the note. And she overhears some of the new, like the, uh, the reporters, reporters um, talking and she hears them start talking about she realizes they're talking about her father and the death of her father and how he must have like killed himself and that there's this whole there's this whole thought that he committed suicide and that he must have been all distraught and she's really upset about this so she goes right up to the reporter who's speaking and starts giving him a piece of her mind his name is Eddie he doesn't at this point realize that it's the former, it's the guy that he's talking about, daughter. Um, and all of a sudden, um, one of like them his boss comes out and says, Oh, Miss, her name's like Mountfort. And Eddie's just like, oh my goodness, like that's like he's he's totally distraught now. So she goes in and she talks to his boss um about everything and then as she's leaving eddie comes up behind her and says i am so so sorry i did not realize and he's trying to like he's he's trying to get his foot out of his mouth and and, and trying to like get her to forgive him but she has no interest um and then she gives him he gives her, kind of tar- starts talking to her and says like that there's more to the whole story And somehow they decide that they're going to start investigating together and they start doing this. And we learn about some of the things that are kind of happening were happening in her father's life that she didn't know about. Um, we get a feel for the times we get a feel for some of the sketchy things that happen in the background. Um, Uh, and all these things, um, and it's really neat, the really like beyond the whole like the feel that you get for the time period, I really like that you get to watch Joe really come into herself, so she starts out at this naive naive girl who really kind of is following the rules but also trying to push against it, and then as the book goes on, you start to see her kind of coming out of that night, like out of that and starting to come into her own and starting to push her way out of that that little kind of shell they have her in. So if you would like to know if she ends up marrying Bram, then you will have to read These Shallow Graves by Jennifer Donnelly.
3: My last book of the evening is Naked and Death by J.D. Robb. Now, Eve Dallas is a police, a, for the, works for the New York City police in 2058, I think this book takes place. Yes. <clears throat> and Eve is called to a crime scene when when a woman is murdered named Sharon de Blas and Sharon is a um, prostitute, but that's not what they call them in the book. I think they call them licensed companions. Yes. (laughs) And so she has to, in 2058, there are no guns, just um, stunners. And so when Sharon is murdered, someone shoots her and leaves the gun at the crime scene. So Eve is confused since nobody's used guns since the 20s, which if you think about it, that's now. Um, And she goes through Sharon's list of clients and is um, going through all of them when she meets a man who she cannot understand who is Rourke. And Rourke was last seen with Sharon two nights before. And so he fits perfectly. He checks all the boxes for her that he could be the killer, but it doesn't feel right to her. And while she's somewhere, um, I think she's at home thinking about these murders, there's another one. And the killer tends to leave a note that says, so-and-so number two, or two of six, I'm sorry, it says two of six. And so Eve is frantic to figure out before he gets to six, who the killer is. This goes from, um, what she calls cop central to the city of new york and the thing about jd rob is she makes manhattan come alive in these books it says from the from the flying cars to the people on um skateboards to she makes it where you want to where you want to own some of those items um auto chef please <laughs> yes an auto chef um which I still can't figure out how they get the food in there but hey um <laughs> <laughs> I think um, you just have to like not care about that part
1: because you no, can't actually no, have really, one.
3: I've seen a lot of discussion boards where they want to know how it's done um oh, and I'm sure they Rob, do we just can't no and JD Rob doesn't answer those questions sadly um, I guess she probably doesn't even know. No, um, she probably does not know. <laughs> um, and so this goes from Manhattan to Virginia to Washington. And each, um, there is another girl who is um, murdered before Eve starts to figure out some of the puzzle pieces. Um, This is Naked in Death by J.D. Robb. And this is the first book in the series. And I think there's, what, 50-something? 55 or 56 now? Yeah, something like that. I thought it was 54. But yeah, 55, 56. And another one to come out in September. So because they always come in February and
1: September. So Georgina took us to the future, But I am taking us to the past. And we are going to talk about the Harlem Renaissance duology by Nikesa Afia. And this starts with Dead Dead Girls and finishes with Harlem Sunset. So these are set in Harlem in the mid-1920s. And so you have all of the like speakeasies and all the prohibition, you know, gangster kind of drama that runs through these books. But you also have Louise. And Louise is a young Black woman who works at a cafe. And she lives in a rooming house with her girlfriend, Rosa Maria. And they are trying very hard to keep their relationship under wraps. In the 1920s, you were not really supposed to be, you know, an out and proud lesbian. And so they spend time together, but under the guise of being very good friends. And then they sneak into each other's rooms, you know, at night and spend private time together that way. But it's very, very important that nobody find out. Now, Louise had some trauma. In her past, she was abducted as a teenager and managed to survive, but it has caused a lot of difficulties both for her personally and with her family. And so she kind of feels like she's alone in the world, aside from Rosa Maria and the group of friends that she has made, you know, over the years. Now she comes to work one day. And she finds a body outside of the cafe. It's another young Black woman. And for reasons that I'm not going to get into in this description, the police decide that Louise must be responsible for this murder. Now, she knows she's not. And she tries to convince detectives of this. Now, this one detective, he believes her. But he also knows that if he pretends not to, he can accomplish something that is important to him. And so he tells her that if she really wants to clear her name, she will figure out who the murderer is because she, as a Black woman in Harlem, can go places and get answers that he cannot get. He is a white man. He is a white man in authority. And so he's not going to be able to get close to a lot of people and ask them some of the more sensitive questions that he believes Louise will be able to get away with. So she becomes sort of his unwilling ally as they try to figure out who is responsible for this woman's death and whether this particular murder is linked to some others that have been happening around Harlem in like previous months. Now, the, the mystery here wraps up in part at the end of Dead, Dead Girls, but if you move on to Harlem Sunset, you still see some repercussions of this sort of investigation and the ways in which it further pulls Louise into this detective's web. And so as you're reading, you never really know if this is a character that you can trust or does he have some other very sinister ulterior motive for getting Louise involved in all of this. Um, This is remarkable for the ways in which 1920s era Harlem um, is, is brought to life here. It's very full of all of the things that you want in a 20s era novel but it also goes deeper into some of the social issues that we don't always read about when we read about sort of the the shenanigans that are commonly associated with this period in history. Um, I loved this so much. I am eager to see what Afia has in store for us now that this particular duology has been concluded. And it is just one of the best historical mysteries um, to have come out in recent years. So this is Dead, Dead Girls, Harlem Renaissance, book one by Nikesa Afia. And it is followed up by Harlem Sunset.
3: I love
0: books set in the 1920s, especially like in New York. My final book of the evening is by one of my favorite authors that I discovered just a couple years ago. And I'm going to talk about Love Lettering by Kate Claiborne. And this book is about Meg Mackworth. And Meg sees signs everywhere. She lives in New York City. And what she does is she does like custom. Like journals for people, planners. She does um, like wedding, um, like announcements, um, programs. And the way that letters, and I don't mean like epistolary elements, but the way that actual letters are written out has always spoken to her. She sees messages in the way that letters are written, like on signs and in books and in notes. And they all say something to her by the way each letter is written. And Meg, at the beginning of the book, um, has uh, she's made it big and is known as the planner of Park Slope. And she has, you know, celebrities coming to her and other sort of um, affluent people coming to her wanting her to make them custom um, custom things, calendars, planners, um, you know, kind of hand-lettered signs in their homes, different things like that. But what Meg hasn't really told anyone is that in recent months, she's experienced some pretty considerable creative sort of writer's block. She's having trouble creating. She's having trouble feeling. She's having trouble, you know, fulfilling like contracts and things that she's been asked to do for different people. And she works in um, like a stationery, like a a store that has like art supplies and stationery and all that stuff. And much to her shock, in walks a man that she designed his wedding programs for. And she knew a year ago when she met Reed Sutherland, that his um, wedding to his fiance, like his marriage was doomed to fail. But what she didn't realize is that Reed can see patterns as well. And he saw the words of warning that she sort of put into his wedding program that were disguised by drawings of flowers and other things. But Reed picked up on her like words of warning. And now a year later, he's tracked her down because he wants to find out like, how did she know how did this person know that his marriage was not going to be something that could last because he never did marry his fiance and he's been struggling for the last year and really like meg doesn't have time for him she's struggling she um is living with a friend who no longer is communicating with her like their friendship is imploding and she doesn't know why This woman has been her best friend since like eighth grade and, you know, all of a sudden now they're very distant and she can't figure out what's happening with that. She's um, has the opportunity to go very, very big with a, with a company to get her, her work um, kind of seen more like nationwide. And she's also been asked to design um, some signage in a home and some painting for um, a celebrity from her youth that she is a huge fan of this person's work. And now here comes Reed and he wants her to explain to him how she could possibly have known that his marriage was going to implode. And Meg doesn't know how to deal with any of it, but she has to figure out what to do for this company, for her, um, her work to be seen by this company for her portfolio. And she gets Reed to begin accompanying her on these walks through New York city, because all the signs, the different writing on various signs on buildings throughout the city speak to her soul. And so she wants, he, he offers to kind of come along with her and kind of see what there is to see. But what she also wants to do is get him to fall in love with New York city in the way that she does. And even though he's very uptight in his buttoned-up shirts and his stodgy, starchy air, she sees something very gradually that shows her that maybe Reed isn't quite as uptight, judgmental, you know, buttoned-up man as she originally thought he might be. And as Reed and Meg begin walking the streets of New York, he begins to learn like what drew her to the city and how it helped her to become a different person and a stronger, more confident person. And this whole book is just peppered with these really amazing descriptions of New York City and historical signage on old buildings and like more contemporary signage. And it's just a really beautiful love letter to a city and to just the vibrancy and, you know, sort of multicultural experience that is New York city. And through all of their walks and all of that, Reed and Meg get to know each other and they begin to learn that perhaps, you know, there might be more to each of them than the other suspected from their initial few meetings with each other. This book has some lovely found family elements. It has some very strong female friendship elements that I really, really love. It has a gorgeous, uh, incredibly slow burn romance, which I also very much appreciate. And like I said, it's a love letter to New York City. And all of the, the different things that it may have to author to may have to offer in various sort of hues of color and font and word. And I loved this book so very much. And I highly recommend that you pick up Love Lettering by, Clay, by Kate Claiborne.
1: This is an author that I really want to read. Every time you talk about one of her books here, I'm like, oh yeah, I really need to pick up <laughs> one of these. So, this concludes our episode of Books Set in New York. Thank you to Brooke, Georgina, and Stacy for joining me tonight to share some New York City love. Thanks, as always, goes out to Christine for all of her fantastic editing. And of course, we thank each and every one of you for joining us each week as we talk about great books. Mm.